Hello and welcome to Musicians Weekend, the podcast in which we explore the weird and wonderful lives of those who keep classical music making alive. In this episode we'll be chatting about recent events in our own lives and in the classical music world, as well as interviewing some special guests. We are three London-based freelancers. I'm Olivia and I play the harp. I'm Imogen and I play the trumpet. And I'm Davina and I'm a cellist. We can see where in the world you lovely listeners are listening from. So not surprisingly, we have the most listeners in the UK, followed by the US, Australia and New Zealand, but then followed by Sweden, Germany, Switzerland, France, Spain, Hong Kong. Someone is listening in Oman even, Brunei Darussalam, and we've had one download in Afghanistan. So if you are the person listening from Afghanistan, please write in and say hello, as we'd love to hear from you and how you came across our podcast. And indeed, any of our listeners. Thank you all so much for your support. So, Olivia, what have you been up to since our last episode? I've been watching a lot of Love Island. For anybody, <laughs> for anybody who's not living in the UK right now, Love Island is a reality TV show in which good-looking young people get put in a Big Brother-style house and have to couple up, and the winning couple wins £50,000. Okay, so I have really been obsessed, but okay, bear with me here. I think we can make some comparisons to classical music. So yes, there is a shocking lack of body diversity, and one contestant didn't know what Brexit was. I really do like to think that Love Island is a microcosm of real life and love tribulations. And I couldn't resist but include some Love Island stories on the Musicians Weekend Instagram account this week because that's the uh, social media account I'm in charge of. And I asked some of our followers how we could relate classical music to Love Island. And the most common theme that came back in the responses was rejection. So rejection in love can be compared to rejection in auditions. Another person said the anxiety of uncertainty between your your love uh, conquests or attempts. Can be related to the, anxi- the uncertainty in your musical career. And then the main difference that comes up though is that we are not chosen on, luckily, on superficial skills in the classical music industry. Um, I, a lot of people might not know who are listening that orchestral auditions are often screened, which means the panel can't see who they are listening to. I just had a thought. Imagine if every time you had an unsuccessful audition, you got an email from them from the orchestra saying, it's not you, it's me. <laughs> Another thing, on a serious note, I should mention, the show has rightly been criticised for the lack of ethnic diversity and Samira being the only girl of colour. Um, so I thought I should just drop that in as another connection to classical music. I also went to see Macbeth at the National Theatre and I just thought I'd be really honest about this experience. So I can't remember the last time I went to see a Shakespeare play and I felt like I was a kid on a school trip and I had to sort of pinch myself just to stay awake. (laughs) And we left in the interval and I'm sure it was a fantastic production. The music was very good. Oh, yes. And obviously the actors are extremely talented. But I just felt like... I was witnessing some kind of club that I wasn't part of and I suddenly felt really sad thinking oh my gosh what if people who go to classical concerts and they don't normally do that feel like that because I often don't go to see plays Mm. 
and specifically not Shakespeare based. And I thought, gosh, what if people go to classical concerts and feel as alienated as I did at that Shakespeare play? What made you feel alienated at the play? I think because I didn't enjoy it. Right. I thought it felt like something I had to enjoy because it was like a cultural event. Sure. And I don't want to ever be one of those people who goes to things just to seem cultured. For yeah. the sake of it. For the sake of it. Mm. Probably helps that our job is in the arts, so we're doing it day to day anyway, so I never feel the need to prove something. But I guess I assumed that I would be able to appreciate it more than I did. Yeah, it just kind of made me think, stop and think and think maybe this is how people can feel if, say, they go to an opera or a kind of classical experience that they're not used to. Mm. Imogen, what have you been up to? I spent a few days last week in Norway because I was invited to be one of five students on a brand new masterclass course for wind players, which has been organised as part of the Resort Chamber Music Festival. There are quite a few international courses for string players and pianists and singers, I think, but actually not really anything for winds. So that's basically what inspired the course. Rizor is the most beautiful, typical Norwegian town right on the sea. And it's in the south of Norway. It's a very wealthy town. And basically no one has cars. They all have boats. <laughs> so it's pretty amazing. And this whole town basically just gets taken over by the festival every summer. It's been running for almost 30 years. And there's just tons of volunteers and brilliant people that help keep it running. The masterclasses were taken by Norwegian trumpet soloist Tina Ting Helset and Australian saxophonist Amy Dixon. And we were in the class two trumpet students, two saxophone students, and a tuba player, both from the UK and from Norway. And we played chamber music as a group. We had lessons, which we all watched each other playing. And, and it was just really interesting and nice to see not just trumpet players or not just the same instrument. Uh, really interesting to hear about the challenges of other instruments, but still in the same kind of wind category. I think also, like we mentioned a couple of episodes ago about having lessons post music college, it was really refreshing to go back to being a student again for a few days and to hear someone else's thoughts on your playing, someone that you've never played to before, when it's not an audition or it's not an exam, it's just, you know, a chance to play to someone. And one of the biggest pieces of advice that I had from the masterclasses was from Amy Dixon about recording yourself because I think I'd played something and she said are you conscious that your breathing is quite high or something like that or you know are you aware of what you're doing and I sort of said oh yeah five years ago someone gave me those comments and <laughs> I knew I should work on it and change it but I think once you leave college it's just really hard to notice what you're doing or any bad habits and she said she records herself every day Wow. Every day? Every single day. She says she chooses one thing and she records it and she watches it. And I just gave her this look of like, oh, that sounds like hell. You know, the worst thing just to watch yourself and hear yourself playing. But she just says it's the most honest feedback you can get, you know, without going to play to someone mm. every day. And she just said it's really helped her to iron out these habits. And I have to say, watching her, we, had, we did a concert at the end of the week and watching her perform was amazing she was just looked so serene physically it just looked so 
comfortable. She just probably knew exactly what she was doing and was completely in control. Yeah, it's just part of her practice routine is to record herself and watch it. Does she video herself if she's watching it? Yeah, exactly. It's like like having an out-of-body experience, isn't it? Yeah, so obviously recording audio is also really important. Mm. Um, But I think video is good in terms of actually seeing yourself unless you play in front of a mirror every day it's kind of hard to it's funny you brought that up because i had just realized i had a lesson since our last recording and i hadn't had a lesson for ages so thanks for inspiring that imogen (laughs) and afterwards i recorded myself and that helped so much and changed i reinforced everything that we've been talking about in the lesson yeah because sometimes i think with recording it can obviously highlight things that you need to work on but sometimes it can actually make you realise that things that you thought were really bad actually weren't so bad. Yeah, mm. sure. And actually when you listen back to it, you're like, oh, that was actually okay. Yeah. So it yeah. can be quite a nice feedback as well. Yeah, it's useful to put your ears in a different place, isn't it? I think violinists find this especially, what they hear right underneath, you know, because the instrument's right underneath their jaw. It can sound really, really harsh, but you have to, have to listen to what it would sound like away from your instrument and I suppose to a degree we get that with the cello as well. This week has also marked the start of Wimbledon tennis and I live very near there so everything has been Wimbledonified (laughs) and in the same way that Olivia related classical music to Love Island I thought I could relate classical music to Wimbledon tennis because I was talking to someone the other day actually in a pub after a concert and this is so this is not my thoughts this is their thoughts but um this person said that what they love about Wimbledon is that whatever court you're watching, whatever people are playing, there is the same respect, the same professionalism, the same um, seriousness about what they're doing as if they're on centre court. So centre court or court 18, it's the same professional environment. And it's sort of was talking about how no matter kind of what gig you're doing, whether you're in the Royal Albert Hall or you're in the small church next door you've got to bring that same level of professionalism to your work and people will respect you equally for it absolutely i've definitely come across some people who they rock up to gigs that they think they're obviously above and you just think i don't really want to work with this person again because they turn up and they're like oh yeah don't really want to be here and they don't they don't have that same level of commitment as they would perhaps somewhere else it's just really off-putting i think Davina, what have you been up to recently? Well, I'm going to say straight off the bat that I haven't attended any concerts, despite saying last episode I was going to take a leaf out of Olivia's book. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I've just been really busy and very tired. Um, Busy, busy, busy. Exactly. I've had a super busy last couple of weeks doing an opera out in the countryside, about a two hours drive from London, which has been pretty much every second evening. But I fell into the trap known all too well to most freelancers, and I'm sure you guys can relate to this. I ended up saying yes to many things that occupied the days in between the opera. And as a result, I haven't had a complete day off since my holiday in Germany a month ago. It was like two episodes ago. So what I tend to do is I get asked to do something and I check the times and they look fine if they work out, but then when it comes to the day, I realise I haven't quite factored in enough time for the logistics, practice, and or sleep. I don't know if you guys do this, but I quite often, I don't see that there's a late return one night and, a, and then a very, very early yeah. start the next day. No, I'm definitely the same. And 
I do think, you, as freelancers, sadly, we do have to make hay while the sun shines, and this is a particularly busy time of year. Yeah. But I'm also very bad at my timings, so I, I'm bad at forward planning, thinking how many hours do I need to actually get on top of whatever I've got to play then. Yeah. Hopefully that comes with age and experience. <laughs> <laughs> and um, having the power to say no. Yes, exactly. I was practising at my parents' house, a couple of weeks ago and I was really stressed or I was just thinking like oh my gosh I've got so much to do I don't know how I'm going to get it all done and my mum said when was your last day off <laughs> and I said oh, I don't know and I tried, kind of had to open my calendar on my phone was like looking through and thinking like oh I don't know and I said oh it's fine I've got a day off this Sunday I mean I'm teaching four students but, <laughs> but apart from that and she was like that is not a day off you know that yeah, and yeah. weird that in my mind, I think I totally see that as a free day, even though I'm still working. I, I you know I don't necessarily play my trumpet in those lessons, but it's definitely you're still working. You've still got something in the schedule that you need to work around. Yeah. I think for me, a complete day off is a day where I can just lie on my bed and do absolutely nothing and just eat all day. I think the problem is is that I don't write in when I'm going to sleep or practice, so that when the diary does fill up, I find that those two things in particular get sacrificed and. I really have to work out when I have free slots to practice or have time to myself. But um, I have been using the stopwatch method of practice recently. As mentioned in our last episode, it's been really productive. I set my timer yesterday, uh, both for practice and for the cooking time for my chicken. So while my chicken was in the oven, I did loads of practice. It was very, very productive. Uh, I think another thing that gets sacrificed with being super busy, and I'm wondering if you two can relate to this, can be having enough time to see your other half. So my husband's a freelance musician as well. And while we occasionally have gigs together, there's so much going on in London that you can have complete opposite schedules as well. A couple of weekends ago, we didn't see each other awake for almost 72 hours. That's Despite so not sad. even leaving London or... Staying um, in the same bed every night. Exactly. <laughs> just didn't see him awake. So I'd feel a kiss on my forehead every morning, um, really early as he'd be off to teach at the crack of dawn. And then I'd get home late from the opera and give him a goodnight kiss at midnight. And we just didn't see each other. We ended up having to sit down with our diaries and think, gosh, when can we have a meal together or just catch up? I found that quite interesting to hear because I go out with a muggle and I always think that, <laughs> that if I went out with a musician that uh, maybe I'd get to see them more. But How, how do you find it um, being with someone who has regular working hours who has to work around your schedule? Well, we sometimes have a date night, like going to see Macbeth and then leaving in the, <laughs> <laughs> leaving in the interval because you can't stay awake because you don't understand what's going on. So <laughs> that's sex, how sex. we try and do it. Okay, hard for everyone then. <laughs> I find it hard as well sometimes with my boyfriend being a musician in that we're the same. Sometimes we do um, do concerts together and we work together and that's such a luxury and it feels mm. like a real treat. But then sometimes, even like when I went to Norway last week, I wasn't going until Saturday or something, but I still didn't actually see my boyfriend for a couple of days before because he was away and then he came back, but I was out. And then he was working late that night, so I left the sofa bed out for him. So he slept oh. in the other room, but I then got up to go to the airport at 4am or something, so I didn't see him. So actually, even though we weren't 
we were still staying in the same flat. Yeah. We just didn't see each other because the time is too difficult. Like ships passing in the night, as they say. Absence makes a heart grow fonder. <laughs> <laughs> Now to some classical music news. The Royal Philharmonic Orchestra has recently announced the appointment of Russian conductor Vasily Petrenko as their new music director. Petrenko will officially start his five-year contract in August 2021. And excitingly, we have a phone-in with Ben Cunningham, who is a double bassist in the orchestra and also vice chairman of the orchestra. So we thought we'd give him a call and hear his thoughts on this exciting news. Hi Ben, it's Imogen. Hi Imogen, how are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, I'm fine, thank you. Thank you so oh, much. <laughs> thank you so much for speaking on Musicians Weekend Hi. about this Not exciting ever. news of Vasily Potenko becoming your new music director. It's very exciting news. We're all very excited to be off here. What impact are you hoping that Petrenko is going to have on the future of the orchestra? Well, Vasily is such a, a young, dynamic conductor. Um, so of course he brings such artistic chops to the role. Um, he's uh, a wider spokesman for, for all of the, the roles that the RPO performs. Um, and um, that combination of um, advocacy for the orchestra and, and artistic excellence is one that should be a, a really exciting mix, I think. What's the difference between a chief conductor and a music director? What's his role going to involve? Well, it's uh, it's uh, an all-encompassing role um, that Vasily will have as music director. It will be a much more hands-on role. Um, Vasily will have a large part to play in, in uh, developing a, a, a quite a new and exciting um, set of programmes for the RPO. Um, he will also be uh, a wider advocate for the orchestra, in, both in terms of um, fundraising and development, um, and within um, the kind of outreach and um, education work that the RPO does, which I know uh, uh, Vasily has a, a huge affinity for. So that combined with the, with the, the work that the RPO Resound um, Education Programme does all over the UK means that um, uh, he can have a, 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 a broader role to play um, throughout the communities that the RPO serves. That's brilliant. So exciting. And what's the it's really exciting. And what's the process of choosing a new music director? Is there a vote in the orchestra? Well, it's, I mean, it's been years of work in the planning and years of um, working with different conductors. And I mean, getting, getting the synergy right between conductor and orchestra is such a vital um, thing to do. Um, so uh, over the years, the, the new managing director, James Williams, and the board have worked to identify um, a number of candidates that we have worked with. Um, we have taken on, uh, the board is made up of players in the orchestra. Um, and uh, through discussions with um, members of the orchestra, through discussions with principals of the orchestra, through an ongoing process with the board, um, all those uh, opinions are taken into account and uh, we had a, a, a large meeting with the whole orchestra um, finalised the decision a couple of months ago um, and uh, um, it's that kind of collaborative process over a number of years that, that comes to, to this decision. So. And now it's official. It's official, yeah, absolutely. We're hugely excited. Well, huge congratulations and bring on, bring on 2021. <laughs> absolutely, we can't wait. Thank you so much for talking to us, Ben. That's brilliant. No problem. Speak soon. In other music-related news, 
A big congratulations to the composer of our jingle, Chris Rowe, who has been shortlisted for a Music and Sound Award for Best Original Composition in a Feature Film Score. And it's for his music on Mission Control that tells the true stories behind the team at the Apollo Space Programme. Other extremely well-known composers like Hans Zimmer have been nominated in different categories. So a massive congrats to Chris and we wish him all the best of luck. Yay! Yay. That's incredible. I wonder if there's an award can nominate him for for best podcast jingle. Oh my yeah. gosh, I'm going to get Googling. <laughs> it's a good jingle. He would definitely win. He'll win and then we'll be like, our jingle was composed by Chris Rowe. Award-winning podcast jingle composer, yeah, Chris Rowe. Exactly. <laughs> And now for some token New Zealand news, delivered by me, of course. <laughs> uh, the New Zealand Prime Minister, Jacinda Ardern, had her baby on June the 21st, which is really exciting news for world leaders. Um, and the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra gifted her a special performance of Brahms' vegan lead, Lullaby, sung by Wagnerian tenor Simon O'Neill. I just have to give a quick shout out to my sister and my brother-in-law for teaching me how to say vegan lead. <laughs> it was sung both in German and Te Rao Māori, which is the indigenous language of New Zealand. I'll post a link to the performance. It's really interesting to hear both the languages. Um, I get a bit emotional and teary when I hear things sung in Māori because it's so uniquely Kiwi. You don't hear anything quite like it elsewhere in the world. There was also a BBC News article this week about a 103-year-old pianist from France. Her name is Colette Mays, and she was born in 1915. Four years before Debussy died. So she overlapped with Debussy. And then they lived down the road or something. So she reckons they may have walked past each other one time. That's so cool. What a small world. And there's a really lovely video. So we'll put a link to it. And it basically talks about how playing the piano has kept her young and supple. And how the piano will always stay with you, even if men don't. (laughs) (laughs) You can at least rely on the piano. Now on to our interview. Our special guests this week are from Septura, a brass septet made up of some of London's leading brass players. I spoke to the two artistic directors, Simon Cox, who is also principal trumpet of the Aurora Orchestra, and trombonist Matt Knight, who is co-principal trombone of the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. I met up with them after a rehearsal to find out more about the group and to discuss running your own chamber ensemble. A couple of things that they mention which people might not have heard of are Naxos, which is a major UK recording label for classical music, and Menozzle Brass, who are an Austrian brass septet who play loads of different styles of music, often in a very humorous way, so they are well worth a look on YouTube. So here's my chat with Septura. Thanks so much to Simon Cox and Matt Knight from Septura, who've taken the time to meet me today. You are, excitingly, the first double interview we've had on the Musicians Weekend podcast. So I think I'll start by asking you a question each so listeners can learn whose voice is whose. And then after that, it's just a free-for-all. So Simon, what is Septura and how did it come about? Septura is a brass septet. Um, and the aim of the group is to redefine brass chamber music as a serious artistic medium. So throughout my studies, I'd always been really interested in becoming an orchestral player. And I was very lucky that shortly after leaving the Royal Academy of Music, I got a job in Finland in the Helsinki Philharmonic Orchestra. And I spent about three years there. And it was really exciting. It was great to be able to play all the great orchestral repertoire that I'd wanted to play for so long. 
but quite quickly I actually started to find myself not totally artistically satisfied doing that and that led me to want to pursue more chamber music so I gave the whole thing a lot of thought and decided that because of the type of music I wanted to play that the brass septet which is three trombones, three trombones and tuba would be the most appropriate formation. Was that something anyone had done before? Not in a sort of classical music context. Obviously, Monozzo Brass will be very well known to brass players, but they're a slightly different thing. An amazing group, but quite theatrical in their approach, and we're aiming to be a bit more serious. The problem with the brass septet is it's a brand new formation for classical chamber music, so no repertoire existed at all. So I decided, instead of immediately starting a group, I wanted to kind of prepare the way a bit. And I left the orchestra in Finland and moved back to Britain to do a PhD at the Royal Academy of Music. And that was mainly focused on developing repertoire for brass septet through transcriptions and arrangements. And then the group itself was established around about 2012, that's when we had our first rehearsal. Yeah, and we've been very lucky that we've been able to bring together a group of some of London's top players who have jobs in the major orchestras. How did you choose those players? It kind of emerged quite naturally because uh, most of us knew each other already from our student days and we'd continued to work together. So it was fairly obvious who the group of players were going to be from the outset and then one or two extra names were added as things progressed. Matt Knight became more and more heavily involved quite early on in the project and the last few years we've run the group together. So Matt, am I right in thinking that you and Simon do most of or all of the arranging for your group between you? That's right, yeah, we do all of the arrangements together. And what we're trying to do when we do these arrangements or transcriptions is to imagine what these pieces would have been like if they'd actually been written for brass. So the the idea is that when people listen to them, they actually sound like an original brass piece. And in order to do that, we have to choose the repertoire extremely carefully. There's lots of repertoire that we'd love to do, you know, pieces that we really like, but we listen to them and some bits sound like they would work really well for brass. And then we come across a bit that will be a total disaster. You know, it might be a piano piece with incredibly complex figuration or something like that. So we sadly have to ditch it. So we spend a lot of time listening to a lot of music and choosing the pieces very carefully. One of the big driving forces behind this has been the record deal that we have with Naxos. We're recording 10 CDs for them. And each of the discs is focused on a particular period, genre and group of composers. And the idea is that we will build up this imagined history of brass chamber music. Have there been any arrangements that you've actually done and you've rehearsed them and then realised that it just really doesn't work or does it never get that far? I don't think that's happened yet. I mean, people who come to listen to it might disagree. But I think the thing is we do spend a lot of time thinking about the choices. One thing that has happened, though, is that Simon arranged some Poulon, which we wanted to do, and then we didn't get permission because it's still in copyright. So you have to be careful about that. Do you arrange for the strengths of your particular players? And if so, do you think that makes it difficult for other groups to play your arrangements? We certainly do arrange yeah, so the strengths of some of our players. As I mentioned earlier, we're very lucky with some of the players we have, like Hugh Morgan and Matt G. They can really do things on their instruments that no one else can. So we've certainly exploited that. That said, we want the brass septet to become a properly established musical medium worldwide, and we want other people to start groups and to play this music as well. So perhaps uh, groups won't be able to play the music exactly the same way that we do, but they'll bring their own interpretation to it. There's no right or wrong way to play this music. As seven of London's busiest brass players, how on earth do you find time to rehearse? It is pretty tricky because the players have such busy schedules. I mean, this morning, for example, we rehearsed at 8am. Last week we had a rehearsal that started at 10pm and went to half past 11 
One of the things that makes it a little bit easier is that we actually have a bit of a squad. So there's seven players at any one time on stage, but we have 10 members. So we have basically one extra of each instrument, which makes it easier to manage. I mean, the way London orchestras work is reasonably flexible. And we're fortunate that the players are keen to be involved and keen to form with the group. So they do make themselves available as well. So they would get themselves a depth for their orchestra if there was a particularly good Septura gig they really wanted to play on. Yeah, and then that's the only way it can really work. You know, we have to sort of have the members performing with the groups. That's what audiences and promoters expect. This kind of music isn't exactly sight-readable. I think it would be quite harsh to uh, get a depth and throw them into this yeah. uh, situation. <laughs> so I guess for lots of chamber music groups that start at colleges, people start getting other work. It stops becoming a priority. Mm. So for you guys, you really just have to mm. say, this is a priority yeah. and you all have to have the same mindset. Yeah, that's a very common situation that you just described. And in fact, most of us were involved in groups at college that kind of petered out as people start to get trials and jobs. One of the good things about Septuria is we've started it after that period. People are much more established, they know what they're doing, and they can decide what to prioritise. So that's kind of why it works. Are there often differences in opinion between all of you in your rehearsals about phrasing, dynamics, and who gets the final say? Yeah, we do have differences of opinion, of course. One thing that helps, I think, is that when we do the arrangements, we actually put a lot of the interpretation into the arrangements, so it's already there. You know, things like the tempo that Simon and I think it should go. So not necessarily the same as the original? Not necessarily, no. What we think might work for brass, that kind of thing. Dynamics, articulations, all that kind of stuff. A lot of it is already written in. I mean, there wouldn't be time in the limited rehearsals that we have for everyone to come to a complete agreement on an interpretation completely from scratch. So we have to put a load of work in first. But then, of course, there are things to discuss. And also, all of those ideas are open to discussion. But one thing that's interesting is that when we perform a piece for the first time, everyone maybe feels a little bit on edge. And then, actually, they develop over time. And the better people come to know the music and know everyone else's parts as well as their own, actually, in a performance, someone can just decide on one particular night to do something musically, and then everyone can react to it. So we don't really want to sort of straitjacket everyone. There should be that freedom to do real chamber music, basically. What has been the most challenging aspect of setting up and running your own ensemble? The most obvious thing that springs to mind is the amount of time that we've had to put in. We basically run the group ourselves, and for the two of us, it's probably the equivalent of a part-time job. That's been the case for a few years now. And, and you know, it's worth it when we get to do all these great projects. But that's certainly been the thing that's been the most challenging. I think another thing to say is that we started a group in not the easiest time in economic terms. And I think it's particularly tricky if you're doing a brass group because promoters are not really used to it. People are used to having string quartets. There's a kind of career path that's been carved out by many quartets that have come before. For brass show music, there's not much. There have been a few great groups in the past. There are a few great groups around now. But it's not as widespread, so it is tricky. I read online that, Matt, I think you said, our overarching aim is to convince audiences that brass instruments are as capable as any other of playing profound and serious chamber music. How do you think you're reaching or creating an audience other than brass players? Well, it's interesting, actually, because people come to the concerts who aren't brass players, and then they quite often say it wasn't at all what they were expecting. I think people have a very fixed idea of what brass music sounds like. 
It comes a lot from things like the brass band tradition. Brass instruments get pigeonholed, and we know that they have lots of potential in lots of different areas. And I think people are genuinely surprised. The struggle we find is to get people to listen to it in the first place. And once they're in, they tend to like what they hear, I think. Yeah, it's great when we can go and play in festivals that are focused on broader classical music rather than just brass, because then we really do reach audiences who won't be familiar at all with what we're doing. And so far, we've been really pleased with the reactions that we've had. So what would your advice be to students at music college or any other musicians who want to set up their own chamber group? I think the most important thing is to have a really clear idea of what you want to achieve artistically, because that will inform all of your decision making and, and everything that you do, really. Obviously, we all want to be successful in a sort of general sense, but that will only follow if you have a really strong core idea of what you're trying to achieve. Do you think it's important to have one person or two people in charge? I think it can be a lot easier than running the group as a complete democracy. If you divide up responsibilities, you you might often find that one or two people aren't quite pulling their weight. That could potentially create some resentment between players and so on. It is a more straightforward way of doing it but it does mean that the people in question will have a lot of work to do. In terms of financially, were you guys paid from your very first concert? Obviously it's kind of got that way now, which is great, and I guess you don't get paid for all the admin time that you put in, but I guess that's sometimes a deterrent for people at college because it's not going to be something that they can really rely on for money yet. Yes, certainly the amount of work Simon and I do on it would work out very poorly if you try to work (laughs) out the hourly rate significantly below the minimum wage I would think Uh, but the players have always been paid from the beginning and we've tried to stick to a kind of reasonable pay structure we would like it to improve a lot but money is always tight it has been difficult Uh, one thing we've had to do is look abroad for a lot of our work in countries like America and Germany and we think Japan there tends to be more money available for classical music you know we have a lot of great stuff happening in Britain musically speaking but yeah, it doesn't quite have the same financial support as in other countries. By slotting in rehearsals with Septura, does it kind of mean that you actually never have a day off during the week? It's something we need to be quite careful of as musicians, definitely. Yeah, we can often end up going weeks on end without a day off. Obviously, it's kind of in our nature as freelancers to see that as a good thing and be grateful that we're employed, which is a good thing. But you have to be careful to remember to take the odd day off and go on a holiday now and then, otherwise it, it can get a, a bit much. And in running the group, Simon and I, we actually speak at nine o'clock every morning, Monday to Saturday, but we do take Sundays off. We, we don't work on Septuor on Sundays. Really? So you have a phone call every morning? Yeah, well, it's been a, obviously, as you can imagine, a huge learning process for us because we're not professional administrators, we're musicians. So we've had to learn about all kinds of things to do with running a group, like managing accounts and cash flow and obviously scheduling, staying on top of all the website and the social media, all that kind of thing. We adopted various approaches to that, but the one that we've found has really allowed us to stay on top of things is something that I believe is quite common in the business world, which is just to talk every morning and cover whatever may have arisen during the previous day, which may sound a bit extreme, you know, in the context of running a music ensemble, but... And everything um, else that you do alongside it. Yeah, exactly. But you have to be very careful. I mean, managing things like finances, you know, you really have to have an eye on the future all the time and make sure you're not inadvertently going to get yourselves into trouble. So the next concert that's coming up for you guys is next week at St John Smith Square. It's the final part of your kleptomania series about stealing other people's music. And this one is called Song Swag. So can you tell us a bit more about that? 
Yeah, we're actually doing it the night before, the 9th of July in Cambridge as well, if any of your listeners are there. This one actually focuses on the music of Ravel, Foray and Gershwin. And it's kind of about the link between Ravel and Gershwin. So we start with Mother Goose, then we've got some Foray songs. And in the second half, we have some of Gershwin's songbook. And we end with American in Paris, which we actually did on tour in America in January. And it goes down extremely well. It's such a great piece. And it works really well for brass. Simon has to double on some strange instruments. Like car horn, is that one of them? Yeah, so I have to play the car horn at the same time as playing the trumpet. (laughs) Um, I've also in the past had to play multiple percussion instruments when we did the Nutcracker at Christmas time. And, you know, in the music business, we make a lot of jokes about how percussion's basically easy. And uh, I can confirm now that it is. (laughs) (laughs) Beyond that concert next week, what's coming up next for the group? The thing we're most excited about is that our newest CD will come out in October. We're really on home turf for this one, and it's all English music. So we have pieces by Harry, Walton, Finzi, and Algar. I think that we're pretty confident it's our best CD yet, so we're really excited to get that out there. What number is it in your series? It's the sixth release in the series, and our seventh overall, because one of our CDs is a Christmas CD. One thing that's a little bit strange about the way Septura came about is that we had actually recorded two CDs by the time we did our first concert. Partly because we didn't have any repertoire before that, so we had to build it up a bit. But it did mean that we had something to show off straight away. I mean, it, actually, before that, we'd even done a demo disc. So the group has come about in a slightly topsy-turvy way. And it's only in this season that we're in now that the concerts have really taken over and been a much more dominant part of our activity. Looking further ahead, we have some great concerts coming up in the UK and next year some very exciting touring plans. We're going to New Zealand for the first time. We're very much hoping to go to Japan and we're going to go back to Germany and Austria. So there's lots of interesting plans around the world. You have a management company, don't you? Do they help organise those tours? That's right, yeah. So we're managed by Icon Arts and they organise all of our UK stuff and a lot of our foreign touring as well. episode we like to ask our interviewees about their weirdest gigs and I was wondering if you can think of any bizarre concerts that Septura has ever done or any funny experiences you've had. We've done some pretty bizarre concerts. We did a fantastic concert in Harlech Castle as part of the Greganog Festival which was an amazing setting but one of the things that they wanted us to do before the concert was to go up into the turrets and play the fanfares that were written for the investiture of the Prince of Wales. And it was going to be the first time that these fanfares had been heard since the investiture. What Um, they didn't tell us is that the turrets were quite a bit higher than we (laughs) were expecting. It was quite a precarious journey to get up there. And then we're not convinced the fanfares were heard exactly as they were originally because a certain trumpeter's music sort of blew away (laughs) and... uh, We never saw it again. So there was the wind that blew the music off and Hugh Morgan unfortunately suffers from vertigo. So just before we were about to perform one of them, he seemed to have a kind of panic attack and have to (laughs) take some deep breaths on his asthma inhaler. And then he did it sort of squatting down in the middle of the turret whilst we all stood (laughs) Yeah, we sort of protected him. In order to get lots of different colours, we quite often use different instruments in the group. One of them is the euphonium, which I tend to play. Like a mini tuba. Exactly, yeah. And the thing about playing a second instrument is that you need to remember to bring it on stage. So we have recently performed a new version of Pictures at an Exhibition. 
got a euphonium solo. We actually, when we when we arranged it, we tried to stick to the piano version and, and not take any notice of Ravel's orchestration. But when it came to Bidlow, we couldn't get rid of the sound of the euphonium from our head, so we did use it. And when we did it in Cambridge, when you're running a group and you've got to think about speaking to the audience and all that kind of stuff, lots to think about. And I completely forgot to bring the euphonium on for the second half. So we sort of got to the end of the movement before and I saw on my part it said two euphonium. And I looked down and thought, oh dear. <laughs> a slightly awkward silence while I walked off stage back to the dressing room and got the euphonium out of its case and then walked back on to perform Bidlow. Did the rest of you just stand there in silence or did you laugh? <laughs> we, we tried to sort of maintain our composure. Afterwards we definitely didn't though. <laughs> yeah, we do actually have a bit of a rule in the group, which is that it's never too soon to joke about anything that's gone wrong. So basically, if something goes slightly wrong in a concert, immediately afterwards, there is a relentless <laughs> torrent <laughs> of abuse. Yeah. We have had some interesting bonding experiences. We went to Finland a couple of years ago, and during my time there, I became familiar with the sauna tradition. It's actually a Finnish word originally, but it's very important that when you go into the sauna that you're completely naked. And I explained to the players that this would be the case before we got there. We've done a couple of concerts in Lieksa. It's an absolutely stunning place. And afterwards they invited us to a kind of party. It was a barbecue down by a river. It was fantastic. And we were all having beers and eating burgers and things. And then one of the organisers of the festival came out and said, we'd like to invite the gentleman of Septura to join us in the sauna. So we followed him into the changing room, whipped off all his clothes. Um, so Simon said, this is what we're doing. We yeah, all, we all followed suit. And now it's fair to say uh, there are only very small secrets between us. Another question for each of you. What would you have liked to be if you weren't a musician? Well, we thought we might like to answer this for each other. Oh, that's good. So from my knowledge of Simon's teenage years, I think that if he hadn't become a trumpet player, he would have tried to become a professional gamer um, (laughs) with maybe a limited amount of success. And limited friends. That's computer games, just in case anyone's (laughs) thinking of something else. So he, he, he may well still be living in his parents' house in Cardiff. Probably, and taking job seekers allowance, and still thinking I was going to make it, you know. Well, that's very happy. What would you get your own back now? What would Matt be doing? Matt would be doing one of two things, I think. He would either have gone into academia and be a classics professor, or he'd have gone to work in the City of London and be a sort of ruthless, high-flying lawyer. Not the kind of person you'd like to go for a job with. <laughs> Thanks so much to Simon and Matt for that wonderful interview. Now on to our weird gig of the week. Our weird gig comes from viola player Jenny Coombs and she says, In 2014 I played as part of a quartet on a cruise ship that sailed from Cape Town to Southampton. Unbeknownst to us in the quartet, there was a tradition that was upheld for members of staff who were crossing the equator for the first time via ship, whereby they had to undergo an equatorial initiation ritual. As this was the first cruise for the quartet, we were subjected to this ritual and were told to meet on the top deck at a certain time of day. When we got there, we were met by all the passengers of the cruise, as well as many senior members of the crew, including a man dressed as the god of the sea, Neptune. 
He declared that we had been summoned into the court of Neptune as we were inexperienced sailors and were to undergo a series of embarrassing rituals to be inducted as shellbacks or seasoned sailors who had endured the hardships of crossing the equator. What followed was having to walk up to Neptune one by one, kiss a dead fish that had been caught that day on the lips, lie on a table where a fluorescent green mixture of flour, water and fish parts was poured all over our bodies, concluding with jumping into the spa pool of the same mixture that had been repurposed for the ritual, all for the entertainment of the passengers on board who were watching from all over. We were presented with certificates for our efforts, so now I can officially call myself a shellback, and the mixture did wash off, although it was a bit disconcerting, having to perform a concert that night to the lingering stench of fish. That sounds just absolutely disgusting, so I think we can move swiftly on to some upcoming concerts. I really don't mean this is a plug, even though I am in the concert, so I guess it is a plug, but I am um, involved in staging of a chamber opera at a Friday night late at the Victorian Albert Museum on Friday the 20th of July. It's a chamber opera by Jonathan Dove called Seven Angels, and it is for only countertenor, soprano and harp. And I think it's going to look quite stunning because we're in the Florentine Chapel and we're going to be around all this amazing art and statues and it's based on the life of a painter who is painting at a similar time to that artwork that's going to be around us. So um, if you're free, I'll put a link to that. It's completely free. There are two performances at 6pm and 8pm. So you have time to whiz back home for Love Island. Yeah. <laughs> Is that what you're going to be doing after the game? Exactly. <laughs> I said that I, I need to finish at 8.30 because I need to get home. <laughs> also, I thought it would be worth mentioning Glyndebourne Opera's Returns Club. For anyone who doesn't know about this, you can sign up online and during that week they will send you an email for new tickets that have become available. So it's quite handy if you do have a day off that week and you can book tickets. Also, just a reminder about the under 30s tickets. I get those. If you're lucky enough to be under 30... <laughs> Davina's scowling. Yeah, sorry, Davina. Um, oh, I don't have much longer left on that scene. But if you get um, well, 30 enjoy, tickets, enjoy, thank enjoy. you, yeah. thank you. So for next year, you can book some cheap tickets if you are under 30. Obviously, the gig that I am looking forward to is Septura's concert next week at St. Johnson Square. Just some more information, it's at 7.30pm on the 10th of July and tickets are £20. However, if you're under 30, sorry Davina, they are £5, so you can book those online. The London Symphony Orchestra Sound Hub Showcase concert is on Saturday the 14th of July at 7pm at LSO St. Luke's which presents new music from composers of the LSO Sound Hub scheme. This scheme was mentioned by our special guest in episode 5, Aaron holloway Nahum, who was part of it a few years ago when he started up the Riot Ensemble. We'll put a link to that concert if you're interested in supporting new music from emerging composers. Tickets are 7 quid no matter how old you are. Enormous thanks to Chris Rowe, who composed our wonderful jingle. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember to like and follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, your favourite podcast apps, and now, as of last week, Spotify! And if you enjoyed this episode, please send it to a couple of friends and spread the word. See you next time. Bye! Bye. Bye.